welcome back to MFA Writers. We are so glad to have you here, and we are so glad to be finished with fall semester. For anyone listening who is in or around academia, we hope you had a great semester, and we hope you have an even better break. Happy holidays to all of you, however you celebrate. The next time we talk to you will be next year, but before that, we've got an interview today with Sarah Knoll of NYU Paris, an episode that was requested by Ryan Babcock. If anyone listening has their own request, just let us know. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Sarah Ann Knoll. Sarah is a writer and editor of fiction and nonfiction. She recently earned her MFA from NYU's Writers Workshop in Paris. Her first short story will appear in After Dinner Conversations in April 2024. Today, Sarah has brought an excerpt from her novel to read for us. This is from my first novel, which is about a teenager named Evie growing up in a high-control church environment in the Midwest. This is from the back half of the novel. Where would she go and how would she leave? She was uselessly young, 16 years old, and she'd spent years only waiting, waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for love to find her, waiting for purpose to reveal itself. She had waited away her girlhood. Ethan's rusty truck rolled to a stop at her driveway, and he seemed to study her bare feet and bedhead. Evie let him, feeling exposed and finding some comfort in that, who the truth sets free is free indeed. She knew the truth about Ethan now, and as much as he had revealed his dark side, so had she found God in him. The way he seized a moment, the way he served and made space for the least, how he was possessed of uncontainable love and joy, his strengths were his weaknesses. Some years later, Evie traveled to the end of the earth, a surprise family trip to Lofoten. They journeyed hours by train, plane, and rented car from Oslo by way of Harstad, over bridges and through maddening tunnels, finally emerging in Svolvere where they tucked themselves into red rohrbrus on stilts. They were surrounded by icy fjord, heard the soft lapping of current against the pebbled shore. They ate salted herring and fin biff in a candlelit restaurant overlooking a sheep pasture. Jane put her chubby fingers to her ear, catching the sound of the lambs tinkling bells when they stirred in their sleep. Out the windows, the sky was moonless and ebony, a few stars like pinpricks, portals to some brilliant world beyond. Then a fine green mist slithered over the rooftop silhouette. There, Evie whispered, was that it? 
Her husband paid the tab while Evie bundled Jane. Then they scurried into the cold air down a crunchy gravel path. A few blocks from town, they couldn't see their hands in front of their faces, absorbed by the darkness, only shadows themselves now. The mountain peaks opened to the sky and the road broadened toward the sea. They grappled for each other's hands in the night and stood with chins hopefully tipped toward heaven. Then the night was lit on fire, tangerine and crimson, undertones of royal blue fading back to jade. The colors were like smoke or water, then like words being inscribed across the expanse. Mommy, Jane said. Evie had just started reading the Chronicles of Narnia to her at bedtimes, Aslan singing into the nothingness, calling beauty into being. The smears across the sky were God's breath, the dancing rainbow, the song's crescendo, the whole sky illuminated now and embracing them with more light than there had been darkness before. Evie wondered how she would capture this moment in words for her daughter, how to tell her that the universe was infinite and spectacular, that God couldn't be fathomed but felt, even though humans tried to trap divinity into language and deeds. No box could contain grace and love and mystery. She felt the intensity of revelation welling in her chest and longed desperately for her daughter to understand the magic of even a momentary glimpse of God, like Moses peeking at God's countenance passing by, and that this, not purity, nor chastity, nor holiness, nor ministry, nor superiority, was the point. Without any of that blocking the way, heaven would permeate earth. Mommy, Jane said again. Her eyes were wide and watery because she would not blink. Children know when not to miss something. This is important, she whispered in her mother's ear. Sixteen, barefoot on the driveway, desperate to say, I understand love now because I've seen the worst of you, and I still desire what's best for you, still hope to be near you. Love surpasses the human understanding of it, even though human beings are called to love. People are bound to love foolishly, and they will love fallibly. Evie didn't have words for those feelings. Ethan leaned over the console to crank open the window. I'm leaving, Ev, he said. Her first thought, it was right. He should get away. The next, where, can it take me away from this too? Her last, the truest, we'll never see each other like this again. He doesn't love you like you think. But really, Evie didn't love Ethan like she thought either. She loved him more because she would let him go. Sarah, that was beautiful. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. You've described this novel that you just read from as autofiction. And autofiction in its simplest definition is fiction inspired by real life events. So I'm curious to hear a bit about the experiences you're drawing from for your writing. Where did you grow up? What was your upbringing like? And what parts of your life inspire your writing the most? Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Indianapolis, um, but I like to think of my childhood as a cornfield childhood. And I was a member of a high-control, charismatic, evangelical church, which at the time felt totally normal. And then I think you get out into the world and you understand how much your theology, which maybe now looks more like dogma, controlled your life and your understanding of the world, but more importantly, um, your understanding of yourself. And I think when you talk about autofiction and an MFA program, it's always with a little bit of a giggle because we all draw from our life experiences, especially in first novels. But I think that I had 
some personal experiences that I wanted to work through, and it was easiest to do it on the page. One of my classmates in the MFA also grew up in an evangelical household, and he's, his thesis was a novel that was exploring those experiences, not autofiction, but exploring some of those experiences through his characters. And he told me that he thought there was a huge audience for these stories because so many people had gone through similar experience. So what's your take on the audience that exists for these stories, and who do you hope that your story will reach? I think I took my time admitting that I wanted to write about the church because the content about church that you see out in the world tends to run in the extreme. And from my perspective, growing up in that, I wasn't writing about a cult or some sort of damaging religion. It was just an environment that was super influential on who I was then and who I became. And so I think as I kind of slowly crept into saying the church is what I will write about, I was surprised to find how that was received in the literary community, especially when I got into the MFA program. NYU is a progressive school. And I was amazed at how many people in my workshops or after I would give readings would come up to me and say, this is so similar to my childhood. And I do really think that there's a space for it because it was so normalized, um, at least in the middle of the country for millennials growing up then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just people who grew up in that type of evangelical household. I grew up in a Catholic household and I think we all go through a moment when we leave home and we go out in the world and we start kind of reconceptualizing all these experiences that we had when we were younger. And um, I think even if we didn't grow up in the type of religious household that you grew up in, I think a lot of people are going to still relate to the experiences that the characters are going through, right? I think so. I started writing the book with a desire to preserve faith. I think everyone wants to have a faith in something, even if it's not God. And so I had to go back to the roots of what my original understanding of faith and the divine were and kind of decide what to keep and what to leave. And I think regardless of your childhood, your background, everyone has that moment where they need to do the same thing. Were you nervous to tackle this subject matter, knowing like people back home might read it? Terrified. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I didn't have this sort of like rebellious rejection of the church. When I say I tiptoed out of the environment, I think part of it was that it was dear to me. It was a part of me and I didn't want to throw away my childhood. And I think part of it is the all-consuming fear of environments like this, where you've been told for 18 years, well, there are other things out there in the world, but what if they're wrong? What if, what if, what if Mm -hmm. it's wrong and you wind up in hell? Maybe it's that. But for me, it was more like, what if I end up disappointing everyone that I've been working so hard to please? And that's a really scary step to take. It's a scary step for the characters, I'm sure. And I'm sure it was for you as well to like leave that environment because I think people from the outside maybe think of it as one or the other, either, you know, you're like a part of this religion or you're not. I don't consider myself a religious person anymore, but there's still this part of me that grew up in that environment that 
relied on faith for my own mental health, for example, and having that not be a part of your life anymore leaves a void and you're still searching for something, like you said, to have faith in, something to kind of hold on to, to give you comfort when that's no longer there. Um, Lots of opportunity for exploration, I imagine, with the characters. Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of beautiful things about religion besides theology. There's community, there's ceremony. For me, it was a huge source of identity. Sure. And I think that those things should be acknowledged because they're lovely. Well, your novel is a story about teenagers growing up in this evangelical environment while trying to figure out who they are as people and how to be themselves. You told me that you first started writing fiction as a creative outlet in the early days of motherhood. How much do you think becoming a mother made you look back on your own upbringing and want to tell this story? I mean, that was probably my number one influence, even if I didn't realize it at the beginning. I think practically speaking, motherhood gave me time that I hadn't had before, which feels funny to say because everyone talks about how they lose themselves in the early days of motherhood. And certainly there are parts of that that are true. But I had daughters, two under two, who napped miraculously and I could salvage two to two and a half hours every afternoon as my own. And so I did that um, religiously. Uh Um, And I realized that I needed that time to kind of go inward and spend it on myself. And now faced with the prospect of having to raise daughters and asking all of these questions um, about how to do that. Obviously, my own childhood came up and it was easier first to say what I didn't want to do. And I think it's more important than when you kind of circle back and say, what do you want to do that you had that was good? Um, yeah. And motherhood kind of inspired that in me and gave me the space to, to do it with fiction, which I hadn't really tried my hand at before. Did you feel like writing made it easier to see a way forward when thinking about raising your own children inside or outside of a religious environment, does the the processing on paper of those memories help you kind of see a way forward? Or do you use the characters to try to find a way forward? How does that work for you when you're writing? Not at first. At first, when you dive into a project like this, it's really painful. It's sort Mm. of like the process of therapy where it gets bad before it gets better. Right. And you have this new lens, which is sort of like a magnifying glass on things that maybe you'd reflected on before, but now you're reflecting on them with purpose. Right. So I think at, at first it, it was more difficult um, to go backward. And I sort of felt this sense of doom. But I think that sense of doom was like a glimmer of honesty of like, now that I have these other human beings that I'm responsible for, I can take a stab at this realistically without the fear of the environment surrounding me and figure out what's really mine. All right. Well, I want to talk to you about your process when writing autofiction. Like, how do you decide what to write about? And once you start writing, how do you decide when and where to deviate from your own experience into fiction? I think writing autofiction is funny that way, at least for me. Writing autofiction starts as a rigid process. And there would be times when I'd be writing certain scenes 
And my characters would be drawing me into this idea, into an action that felt so unexpected. And I would think, but that's not how it happened. And having fiction to sort of explore what the characters want to do versus what actually happened not only makes a stronger story, but it creates revelation. That's how you start to move forward, I think, through the process. In terms of deciding what to keep, I did set a rule for myself that I would never write something about the church that hadn't happened to me or someone close to me. I did that in the name of not villainizing the church. That wasn't my goal to say, look at this, it's so horrible, rather to stay on that honest track that I had sort of discovered. So in terms of what's true, I held fast to that rule. I think when it comes to fictionalizing, it's super useful in creating a stronger story. And it's super useful in condensing character, timeline, creating the feeling of a thing that maybe happened in a hundred parts over the course of five years. You can make it happen in two or three parts in a few moments. Mm. And that's really helpful. Before you began writing fiction, you were interested in PR and magazine writing You worked as an editor for several bloggers and contributed to print and digital magazines before realizing you were more interested in sharing stories than information. Tell us about that earlier career and what made you come to the realization that you preferred creative writing? I was just as slow coming into writing as I was to leave the church. (laughs) (laughs) I despised English and writing in high school. I think because I went to a small school where the programs didn't necessarily foster ability. And I didn't realize that writing wasn't something that everyone could do. You just take the words in your head and you put them down on paper. And in college, I had an incredible mentor. Her name was Holly Miller. I went to a liberal arts school and was required to take a journalism class. And she stopped me one day and was like, I don't know why you're not writing. This is what you should be doing. And I listened to her, maybe because I was in psych stats that same semester, which was terrible. Sorry, Dr. Griffith, it was. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started taking more journalism classes. And I loved the method behind journalistic writing. You you create this inverted pyramid, and it's just so formulaic. And um, you kind of like tie a little bow on it at the end. And that was delightful. And so that same mentor... Um, put me up for an assistantship um, at Ball State University. And I wrote for the alumni magazine and got my master's degree in PR writing. And that was really fun. It was fast paced. I got to follow that formula. And I think somewhere along the way, I realized that there was something in me that was wanting to come out that couldn't come out when I was doing when I was telling other people's stories. I love telling other people's stories, but I wanted to be able to tell my own too. And that's scary. So I turned to fiction. (laughs) Well, as I mentioned earlier, you first started writing fiction in the early days of motherhood. What do you think it was about having a child that motivated that change? And what kinds of things were you writing in those early days? Being a mom is magical because you get to see a human being start from scratch. It's also magical because you get to live through all of that magic with your child. My daughters are like unicorns. Everything is exciting and new and fresh. And to have my days filled with that energy 
I think opened me up to possibility again. You know, reading books that were important to me as a child, there's a reason I mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia in that reading. Those books were so impactful to me when I was young and I had forgotten, but here I could read them to them and watch their faces discover that story for the first time. I think that really energizes you and it drew me. I was already feeling called by storytelling and it drew me further in, I think, seeing how magical it could be. Yeah, that makes total sense to me how seeing someone experiencing everything for the first time could make you look back at your own childhood and start reexamining it. So what did those like early pieces look like? Were they parts of this novel or were they something else? A little bit of both. I did write this novel three times, three very different iterations before I even applied for an MFA. At first I had no idea what I was doing. And so they were these like meandering in embarrassing monologues like inside the head of a character (laughs) but there's like such rich fruit in doing that you really get to know a character I think when you write auto fiction you're like this character is me and then that becomes this like terrifying and almost hindering thing because you're like everyone's gonna think this is me and so anything I say they're gonna hold it against me or it's gonna change their opinion of me or whatever it is so spending time getting to know the character as a character is great. Did I throw away all of those pages? Yes, I made sure <laughs> to put them in the dark recesses of my computer where they'll never be found. Um, <laughs> but it was still an important part of the process. You know, sometimes I write things like that and I think, okay, this is going in the trash. And so whatever, I put it into like a, a folder to never be looked at again. But then sometimes I go back to those pages and I look at them and I realize that parts of them have shown up in other stories I've written because they're just, they're in there, right? They're in the subconscious. So even when we think we're just writing words to throw away, I'm not sure that we really are. Everything is usable. And I think it's all an important part of the process. I have a great writer friend named Susie Krauss, and she says every day, This is what I'm working on today because I'm following that creative energy. This is what's interesting to me today. This is what's feeding me today. And and so that's what she does. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. If it's coming out of you, then it needs to be in the world. Maybe you just need to refine it a little bit. Okay. So you mentioned that you wrote your novel three times before even applying to MFA programs. So what made you at that point want to apply to MFA programs? While I was frustrated and desperate, like any good writer is, (laughs) I had gotten through three drafts of a novel, all wildly different. The last two drafts I had queried separately. And querying is just an exhausting process. And I got to the end, put everything away for a long time, seriously considered never writing again, realized that wasn't possible because I had to write. And so I asked myself what I could do differently. And it was my husband who had suggested looking at MFA programs. I hadn't really considered it because I live in the remote mountains of Colorado and I have two children. I hadn't considered going back to school much as I loved school. And so I was angry Googling in my desperation and discovered low residency MFA programs. And much like motherhood had sort of 
lit this fire inside of me, the idea that I could affect change in my writing life with something like a low residency program energized me again. And so I started looking further into it. Yeah, well, you ended up at one of the more unique programs out there, the NYU Writers Workshop in Paris, which is a two-year low residency program that includes biannual 10-day in-person residencies in Paris in January and July. Students attend five residencies in total over the course of the MFA. What made you pick this program? Well, it was New York, which I love, Paris, which is exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And at the time, the faculty included two of my literary heroes who I actually ended up being able to work with. And so in doing my research, NYU's program was it for me. It was actually the only program that I applied to. And I figured if I didn't get in, I would decide what to do after that. Who were those literary heroes you got to work with? Jonathan Zafran Foer and Zadie Smith. And I also got to study with Nathan Englander and Katie Kitamura, whose work I had not been familiar with before the program. And they also just imparted so much wisdom. And it was a real privilege to work with them. Yeah, that's amazing. We're going to talk more about working with those faculty members. But first, I know that you started the program at the height of COVID, which I'm sure changed some things. So how did COVID affect the residencies while you were in the program? Yeah, it was a disappointment at the time because I began the program in January of 2021. And so there was the slight possibility that we might have had the first residency in person. And then we didn't, rightly so. And so I began with online residencies, which is a little bit challenging because it was hours and hours a day in front of a computer and not a lot of interaction with your colleagues. And in a low residency program, those few moments that you have together are precious and it was harder, harder to get that online. So it was difficult. And I think starting at that time in that way, helped me to really hone in on the work and kind of focus on what I needed to be doing on my own anyway. So it's a two-year program. My understanding is you would start with a residency and then you would have a residency uh, once in January and once in July. So in total, you would end up with five. Is that right? Yeah. Each semester begins with the 10-day residency and then you have a fifth residency after your last semester, sort of in lieu of a graduation ceremony. So the first residency for you ended up being online, but the rest of them were in person in Paris? I got to go to Paris that next residency in July. And then the following January residency was up in the air and canceled at the last minute. So it was a lot harder having experienced the in-person residency in Paris in July and having to go back to online. And then I did end up doing my fourth residency in July in Paris, and thankfully got to have my fifth residency in January of this year in Paris. It was such a gift because I actually ended up liking the winter residencies even more. Hey, three out of five ain't bad. Yeah, it was good. (laughs) And residency is intense, right? Ten days where you're supposed to take in a semester's worth of information and socialization is a lot on a person. And so... I got a good amount in anyway. 
Well, tell us more about that experience. What's it like, those 10 days, not only being in Paris, but the intensive, I imagine, workshops that you're going through in those 10 days? Yeah, so you get to do everything jet-lagged, which is super fun. (laughs) (laughs) And they begin right away. Uh, Residency starts on Sunday with a dinner. And that's so fun because they uh, book a room in a fancy restaurant. You dress up in Paris and go out at night, and it's great. And then you begin. And it's anywhere from three to five craft talks a day, plus a reading every night, except workshop days. You're in workshop for about two and a half hours, followed by two to three craft talks and a reading at night. So you have to be on from about nine in the morning until however late you're out in the streets of Paris, which you can't (laughs) miss because it's Paris. (laughs) You mentioned that community building. I think a lot of people attend MFA programs in part for the community, but I imagine whether those residencies are in person or online, it can be a bit difficult or more difficult building community in a low res program than a full-time program. How was that experience for you? Was it difficult trying to build community in that short amount of time? Yeah, there's not a lot of time to chat when you're taking in all of that information. You spend the most time with your colleagues in workshop, but that's also a different experience than just sort of get to know you conversation. And so I think you have to be really intentional about your social interactions in a low residency program. You have to be intentional about seeking people out who maybe write the same or read the same or workshop the same. That requires paying attention. And it also requires you asserting your true self from the get-go because you want to be authentic so that you can engage in authentic interaction. And so I think, yeah, you have to be thoughtful about it. You were also quite removed from the academic experience when you joined this MFA program. And I imagine that could also be a barrier to building relationships if a lot of your classmates are coming straight from undergrad into the program. Do you have any advice for people considering an MFA later in life on how to get the most out of it? Yeah, I applied to the program, found out I got in, and my first thought was, oh my God, I'm old. (laughs) And I wasn't sure what that would mean moving forward, even navigating all the paperwork that follows your acceptance. I was so far away from that environment and that language. When I got to Paris, I found that I was kind of right in the middle of my colleagues age-wise. So certainly there were people who had come right out of undergrad into the program. There were also a lot of people who were in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, wanting to pursue this degree to elevate their writing. And I thought that was really inspiring. And it also calmed me down. I realized that an MFA is different from other academic programs. You're there because you have a common interest, a common goal. And everyone has something to contribute. It doesn't really have to do with your peer group. And I found that there was a lot of benefit to being a little bit older in this program. I had more insight into what I was writing because there was space for me to reflect on the content. I'd also written the novel three times. And so I knew what I was working with. And it actually made all of the social stuff a little bit easier too. 
because I was the old mom of two, I was really cool if I decided to go out late at night. And also (laughs) it was understandable if I decided to go back to my Airbnb and crash with a bowl of pasta. So it worked out for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was in my mid thirties when I started the, the MFA program and, uh, that was one of the beautiful things about it. I was kind of in the middle too. There were people younger than me, older than me, but we were all so enthusiastic about what we were doing. We were so excited to be just like dedicating ourselves to this craft that none of that mattered at all. We were all hanging out like curious about one another, wanting to hear each other's stories, you know? So I guess my advice for anyone like thinking about joining it in their thirties, forties, or even later is don't worry about it. Like if you're, if you're passionate about doing it, if you're excited about doing it, then that is a good indication that it's the right time to do it. Yeah. And if you're going to become a writer, you want to know who your colleagues are going to be out there in the world, what they're thinking, what they're reading. It all contributes to your own writing journey. And I think it's also exciting to think that you are contributing to someone else's. It makes it a lot less lonely. Yeah. Well, most people I talk to who have attended low residency programs say that the program trains you for the writing life because you must find writing time within and around your everyday life while in the program. What did this program teach you about making space in your life for writing? I think that writing as a young mother, I had created a sort of schedule or practice for myself writing during nap times, as I mentioned earlier. But attending the program sort of helped me infuse my writing with a new sense of importance. There was an immediacy to reading, writing, taking notes, throwing away drafts. It all needed to be done because I had someone to report back to or I had a deadline that had been given to me. And so for me, being in the program and working independently I felt very driven because of the structure of the program versus my own writing practice. And it's interesting to see now that I'm out of the program, how easy it is to slip into old habits of not making that time and space. And so I think even though a lot is required of you in a low residency program, there's still this importance or a sense of urgency that will drive you into the work. So what advice do you have for people who are finishing up MFAs and maybe are struggling with that kind of trying to keep that writing time secure, trying to not slip back into those old habits? Has there been anything that you've learned from this time after the MFA that you want to share with people? Yeah, I think finding the time that works for you is important. You'll get a lot of advice in an MFA program about waking up early to complete your journal pages or writing late into the night when the creative mind is alive. For me, from about noon to three, when I pick up my kids from school, tends to be the best time in my regular life and also in my headspace. And so that's when I write. And I just make it a point to get the other things done before then. And then I sit down. I think my other piece of advice is to not forget that reading is writing work. I didn't read nearly enough before I was in the MFA program Because I told myself if I took time to read, I wouldn't be doing the writing. You have to read so much in an MFA program and it it feeds your writing life. And so making space for reading is important. Yeah, I think that reading advice is really, really good advice. And just talking about that idea of you finding the writing time that works for you. 
we often have these craft conversations. We have these conversations about what it means to be a writer. And we like to talk as if there's one right way to do it or one wrong way to do it. And the reality is it's totally different for each person, right? So really when we talk about these things, we're just saying like, hey, this is what works for me. Maybe give it a try, but you got to find what works for you. And and part of that is finding when to write. Yeah, I think there's a cycle of thinking that happens when you're in an MFA program and you begin and you're just trying to fit in like a little kid going to kindergarten. Yeah. And you're confronted by everything that you're doing wrong. And then there's this turning point where you realize the way that you do things, maybe even the way you want to write something might go against what other people are saying or doing, but you should do it anyway because it's your art. All right. So let's talk about those intervals in between the residencies, what those looked like when you were in the program. What, what kind of writing and reading assignments were you responsible for doing during that time? So the NYU low-res program is unique. Each semester, you work with one set advisor. And there is a loose structure for how your semesters are supposed to go. But I found that they varied from advisor to advisor. And so you begin with a meeting where you set a reading list. Sometimes the advisor wants input. Sometimes they don't. They just say, this is what you should read for this project. Always 10 books. And so in your work during the semester in between residencies, you had to read through that reading list and submit three packets. Those packets would include however much of the reading list you tackled for that packet with a response paper, generally a commentary on craft or how that book applied to what you were writing, and then a certain amount of your own writing, which would go to the advisor with an accompanying editorial letter to ask questions and sort of work through concerns. So the bulk of the work in between residencies really was just reading and writing. And according to the website, these reading and writing assignments can be tailored to the specific interests of the student. Were you able to build those assignments around the work you were doing? Yes. In fact, I only submitted pages from my novel in these packets. Sometimes I'd be starting over if the advisor thought there was something else that I should work on or a different method to to apply. But I was only writing my novel during my time in the program. And not everyone comes into the slow res program knowing what they want to write. So that was a huge benefit of having tackled this book on my own before I applied to the program. I knew what I was writing and I had direct input from the advisors. And you mentioned that you had four different advisors while you're in the program. That seems to be a part of this program. Each semester, students work with a different professor. Did you find that beneficial to work with different writers each semester? Obviously, it comes with its frustration, having to start over, explain what you're trying to do to someone new. But I loved it. I loved going from working with Nathan Englander, who would only take a capped 20 pages and send back these pages long letters, detailing thoughts, opinions about what I had written. He was so at the sentence level. And I learned so much about the beauty of detail, and how I had been leaving that out of my writing. He would highlight things that I had put down sort of mindlessly and ask, what would happen if you massaged this, what would come out of it? To go from that to working with Jonathan Saffron Feller, who loves generating content and we would explore big ideas and work 
in larger page amounts. And I got to the end of a draft in a, in a semester because there was just so much excitement. It was like writing in a fever. And so you could be frustrated at starting over, but I just loved the experience of looking at my book in a new way every semester. Yeah, I can see the benefits and the frustrations with that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you got some amazing writers that you got to work with. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the feelings that I had when applying to this program was that I had been so rejected <laughs> querying the book on my own and doubting yourself. I thought, what if I could consider myself among these giants? And so to enter a program and get to work with these writers whose, whose books you've read and admired, I think that that supersedes any need to stay on this like consistent train of like, I'm writing these 20 pages, but then these 20 pages and then these 20 pages. So much more exciting to just live in the moment with that mentor and glean whatever you can from their input. Well, speaking of querying the novel, I hear that you're continuing to query it now. What's that experience been like and what surprised you about that process? How has it changed maybe since doing the MFA compared to before? (laughs) Oh, I had such naive notions of what it would mean to query a novel with NYU on my query letter. I think you have to be hopeful when you're querying, regardless of what your journey to querying has been. You're sending a letter out into the void and hoping it hits someone's inbox at the exact right moment before it falls into the slush. It's just hard. I have had more positive feedback this round of querying because I've been able to say I attended this program, I've worked with these advisors, but I think also because I have a new confidence in what I'm submitting. And in that sense, the MFA was everything I needed it to be. I needed to not only look at my writing differently, but see myself as a writer differently than I had before the program. And I'm sure that that comes through in the letter. So I'm still querying, not agented yet, but I'm doing it more methodically and more confidently. How has the transition been? Leaving the program, going back to um, your day-to-day life, are you, are you still finding a sense of community, literary community in your day-to-day life, or are you feeling a void there? I was a little bit nervous. You already feel disconnected in a low residency program. And I think being in Colorado and you know assuming that the literary scene is in New York, you wonder if you'll be able to plug in. And I think that's just not true. It was noticeable when I was doing online residencies during COVID. And now having made these connections at NYU, I can see how widespread the literary community is. Even if it's just connecting with somebody on Instagram, because we have someone in common, maybe that I met in the program. I think it's a little bit daunting to graduate, but there's also a part of you that's ready, especially if you have a draft of a novel And just like graduating high school or undergrad, you're sort of ready to step into the next phase. So I was sad to leave, but also anticipating what would come next. Well, I hear you've co-founded a reading series in Denver called Read, Write, Brew. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm working with my friend Adam, who is the host of the podcast Day Beautiful, which features literary fiction debuts. We met on Instagram and found out that we both lived in the Denver area. 
and connected over writers that we loved and decided that Denver was missing a reading series like the kind that we had experienced in New York or other larger cities. So our first event is scheduled for February and we haven't released a lot of details yet, but we really want to bring together the readers and writers of the Denver area. Well, I love Denver and it's got a great art scene, so I'm sure you'll have no trouble finding people. Yeah, I'm excited. It's been fun to see that it's something people are hungry for. And that tells you that sometimes if you feel like you're missing a community, maybe you're the one who just needs to start something. Just got to get out there and do it, right? (laughs) Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? I think for me, the MFA awakened a part of me that I was nervous to tap into. Someone who uses story to tell the truth, even when it's not comfortable, and someone who isn't afraid to do that and confident in her own ability. So the MFA met all of my expectations in helping me see my writing and being a writer in a new light. I'm happy to hear it, and I'm happy you stopped by to talk with us. I had a fantastic time talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.